0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, not too long ago, we were talking about ticks. Oh, yes. About how it turns out you can get a tick on your eyeball, Mm -hmm. sucking the juice from within straight through the conjunctiva. It turns out you can get all kinds of acquired diseases from ticks, like the acquired meat allergy syndrome or the, uh, of course, Lyme disease. We all know about all these other diseases. Of course, the woods are full of not just small animals that can hurt you, but, in fact, if you want to go up to the northwest or somewhere like that, there might be bears that Mm -hmm. could be a threat to you. And yet, people want to go to the woods. Well, they're lovely, dark, and deep. That's the thing. I mean, I like to go to the woods, and yet... There's nothing in the woods that materially benefits me. There's no food there. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, mating opportunity there. Mm-hmm. That was kind of an odd thing to say. But, you know, there, there's no, in a biological sense of the word, nothing there for me, really, except an experience. And yet I seek that experience. I love going hiking in the woods. Yeah, I find
0: the same situation with, with my family. We go out on these these little hikes, uh, you know, in the Atlanta area. And yeah, we're not, we're not foraging for berries <laughs> yeah. or, or, or mushrooms or, or hunting small prey. We're just going out there and kind of breathing air, getting a little exercise. And, um, yeah, I mean, you can, you could break it down into those tangibles and say, well, I'm getting some fresh air. I'm getting some exercise. I'm, you know, I'm occupying myself for the morning. I'm getting away from my phone or something like this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, but in terms of these like evolved needs, these basic biological needs, they're not, They're not necessarily being fulfilled.
1: Yeah. The woods, for some reason, seem to give you pleasure. It's a thing you're seeking out, even though there's not a really direct, um, there might be indirect explanations, but there's not a really direct explanation for why your body would be sending you there. Here's another question. Why do we like pets? Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, (laughs) this is a question uh, my wife and I ask a lot about our cat, uh, because she's kind of a nightmare. But we so we always have these discussions where like pets oh, are parasites. Yeah, they're, she's living in our house, eating our food, uh, and and what does she give back? Like she's not she's not keeping mice out of our our grain or mm-hmm. anything. She's just laying around and and frequently attacking my feet and sometimes barfing on the floor.
1: <laughs> but then but we still love her for some reason. She still in, in, enriches our lives somehow. Our dog Charlie is an absolute parasite. He sometimes can be so annoying, but we love this dog. This dog it, he he brings me so much pleasure. I'm so happy to have this dog even when he's barking at me to take him on a walk while I'm trying to work on something or uh or just eating a bunch of food that we have to pay for. I mean, from a strict material point of view, there's not really a reason to want to have this thing in my house except that I love him.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and I bet a lot of people out there right now are thinking, well, I'm not a dog person. I'm not a cat person. I don't like to go into the woods. I would, I would invite you to expand these definitions because I, I feel like there are certainly individuals out there who really don't want to go into the, you know, the, the North Georgia wilderness. Mm-hmm. But they might – be very attracted to say uh, you know the, the desert environments of uh, of Arizona Absolutely. or to other national parks or to the beach or you know or to tropical islands like some so if if your local outdoor environment doesn't call you if specific outdoor environments don't don't call to you then there have to be there're probably
1: other natural world environments that that do ring your bell I got one more for you Robert okay why do people plant flowers in their backyard yeah I mean, what, maybe maybe you could say, okay, planting flowers in the front yard could be some kind of social thing where you're trying to demonstrate your, I don't know, wealth and leisure time or mm-hmm. something like that. People plant flowers in their backyard. No peop- nobody can see them except you. Well, and so again, it's there. There appears to they're getting some kind of pleasure. From yeah. having these plants that are growing that they're taking care of, and the plants don't provide food, they don't provide any material benefit, except that you look at them and it makes you feel good.
0: Unless you're growing edible flowers. Well. well you know. But, uh, but yeah. Wait, the- is that
1: a thing? I thought edible flowers. Yeah, you would- can buy them at Whole Foods.
0: <laughs> you can seriously get a whole container of edible flowers for like, you know, 18 bucks or something.
1: Well, wait, people eat squash blossoms, do That's they? true, yeah. Like the squash blossom quesadilla. Yeah.
0: But yeah, a lot of people that do grow flowers, you're just growing them to look at them or to appreciate, say, the butterflies that are attracted in by them, the uh or the various pollinating insects.
1: Yeah. So we have all these weird relationships with life forms in natural landscapes with pet animals with mm-hmm. vegetation oh with yeah and if not a
0: dog or a cat you think of fish think of, oh yeah you know snakes reptile other reptiles whatever your fancy is even a even a, a, a weird pet like a, a scorpion or a tarantula mm-hmm. and uh and you know i'm not calling you a weirdo if you have those but you you're probably into the weirdness of it if you do own a pet scorpion or tarantula what about if you own pet ticks well, then you're probably what an uh a a a partially mythological uh, Eastern warlord right <laughs> as a callback to our ticks episode that
1: there. would be great to have a pit of ticks in your house for when you know just to threaten the children when they're being too unruly, mm-hmm.
0: or you just have them as pets, and people are like, "Whoa, you have a pit full of ticks that's horrible." and you're like, no, i don't I don't feed anybody to the ticks. I just keep them
1: around. I love to watch these little guys crawl around. so we're presented with a question here. And humans seek out all kinds of activities and get pleasure from all kinds of activities that don't appear to have any direct material benefit. Yet we we just like them. And so one reason for this could be that it's some kind of cultural thing that mm-hmm. we you know we grow up being taught to like walking in the woods or to like looking at flowers, and that's a possible answer. Yeah, uh, but also many of these things seem very universal, like across different cultures, people have some kind of companion animal relationship, or they enjoy certain natural landscapes, they enjoy being surrounded by certain types of plants. And so another way of looking at this, apart from just cultural learning, could be that there's some kind of biological instinct that connects us To other forms of life, even forms of life that aren't directly uh, benefiting us by, say, providing food or providing shelter or something like that. And this brings us to the topic of today's episode, which is a hypothesis that's been around in biology and evolutionary psychology for a few decades now, known as the biophilia hypothesis. And this is mainly attributed to the work – there have been multiple people working in this field now. But it's mainly attributed to the work of the American biologist Edward O. Wilson, also known as E.O. Wilson. Now, Robert, you recently went to like the E.O. Wilson Center. Is this a place uh, uh, from his hometown?
0: Um, it's definitely down from his uh, stomping grounds. Okay. Yeah, because uh, Ed- Edward O. Wilson is uh, was Al- Alabama born in 1929, and he grew up in various Florida and Alabama towns. Yeah. So uh, th- this is very much in his his stomping grounds. The Edward O. o. Wilson Center is in Freeport, Florida, and um, uh, I and my family visited it uh, earlier this month. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's named in honor of Wilson and it echoes his ideas and values and, and he's, he's been there. He's done, he's, he's visited the, the center. So he's, he's, uh, he's very much a part of its, its ethos, I guess you would say. So what's this place like? It's wonderful. So my family was vacationing at Greaton Beach, which is close to Destin, but if you need a broader idea of where it is, we're talking roughly halfway along the coast between, uh, Pensacola and Panama City. Uh, and I know that at times, If one is visiting Florida, you're not a Floridian yourself. There's sometimes a hesitancy to um, to backtrack away from the beach too much. Uh But there there are some. I mean, far from from just this one location, there's some wonderful outdoor. Uh, you know things to see in the state, so so don't be afraid to explore a bit. Uh, no, but, I,
1: I know exactly what you're talking about. Some people really love the beach. I really love the swamp.
0: yeah, one of my uh, favorite places that I've been to uh, a few times uh, now is uh, Wakula Springs State Park in Florida. This is where you have this wonderful, deep natural spring. You have manatees coming in, this rich uh, um, estuary environment with protected uh,
1: regions. Is this where you saw The Leaping Fish? Yes, when this we is did where I saw The fish? Leaping Fish. They were just leaping around like it was a Disney movie. It was fabulous. If you haven't caught that episode, that's from, I guess, a year or so ago now. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, go back and check out our episode about jumping fish. That was a more interesting topic than I expected.
0: Yeah, that one and, and at times deadly. Uh, I'll make sure we link to that one on the landing page for this episode at com. But uh, the Edward O. Wilson Center, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful indoor-outdoor educational center, and it really does an excellent job of relating biology to to young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the, the time during the course of the year, it's it's only open to uh, school groups and whatnot. But uh, during the summer, uh, June and July, it's open to the public on Thursdays and Fridays. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to eowilsoncenter.org. Uh but yeah, it's wonderful. There's a giant bird when you first walk in the door. There are giant animals to crawl on. There's a there's an observable bee colony, uh, honeybees that you can uh, check out and try and find the queen.
1: So if it's the Edward Wilson Center, I would expect there to be ants there, right? There
0: are ants. Yes, there's a huge display on ants. Uh, a giant ant that you can crawl on. Whoa! Yeah. So it's it's
1: it's really wonderful stuff. I, I recommend going. Like Honey, I Shrunk the Kid scale. Yes. <laughs> Well, so before we get into the biophilia hypothesis, we, I guess we should talk about Edward Wilson himself because one of the so uh, he's got this book from 1984, I believe, is from the 1980s, called Biophilia, where he first articulates this idea. Now he would explore it more in, in a later book. Um, but the, this book, Biophilia, is a is a book I've read and it's a really enjoyable scientific memoir. A lot of what he talks about is uh, like his uh, research on ants mm-hmm. and his field work in places like Suriname and Papua New Guinea. And so he weaves together these themes from his life and from his work in science and his thoughts about what the role of science in society is. the The idea that ties this all together is this idea of biophilia our innate affiliation with or desire to focus on other living life forms and natural landscapes uh, or lifelike processes. Now, there's some ambiguity in there, and we can address that ambiguity later and any problems it might cause for this as a hypothesis. But he definitely has a personal way of expressing his feelings about this idea, right? It it very much connects back to stories throughout his life.
0: Yeah, so it's important to note that Edward O. Wilson is – He's the real deal here. He is yeah. uh, he's he is a, a an acclaimed scientist, uh specifically an entomologist, and he is a and he is a very accomplished author. Like he he officially retired in 1996, but he's just continued to write uh, books uh like al- almost every year i mean his yeah. bibliography is incredible
1: and his books are good he's one of yeah. those science writers who who is actually a very very good writer he's expressive and poetic but he also gets to the point i i, I think he's one of the better scientists slash science writers in america
0: yeah and then and he's also very relatable uh, especially uh, when you see him you know in person or in a video or a ted talk he's he's Alabama-born, he's very folksy, <laughs> and he and he describes himself as being essentially still a child at heart, and he has that kind of enthusiasm for nature. So I mentioned he was born in 1929, an earlier uh, biographical detail that often comes up, and he attributes to being what sort of steered him into studying ants, is that he was seven years old and he blinded himself uh, in one eye during a fishing
1: accident. Yeah, what he pulled up a fish and the fin got him right. Yeah, in the had eye. A
0: spiny fin got him in the eye Whoa. and uh, blinded him. And so he this led him to focus more. He says on little things, things that he could actually get up, you know, get up close to with an eyeglass. So he turned to ants, entomology. This became his key area of research. He attended the University of Alabama and earned his bachelor's and master's in biology. And he identified fire ants as an invasive species and reported on the first U.S. colony of fire ants. That was while he was in college. Yeah, that was sure. while he was in college. This is yeah. the you know, early days for him. Um, and, and this is – we were just talking about this before we went on the air here. There's a video on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> and it was – I believe it, it – is aligned with the E.O. Wilson Center, but it, it starts off narrated by Harrison Ford, uh, and then yeah. uh, and then Attenborough comes in and talks about how how. How amazing Edward O. Wilson is.
1: So this, this video is weird for multiple reasons. And one of them is that you hear Harrison Ford trying to sound enthusiastic about something, uh-huh. which I don't know if I've ever heard before. Yeah. You know, the most chronically bored and <laughs> unenthusiastic actor in the history of cinema. And, and we love him for it. Yeah. But he's, he's talking about the greatness of the work of Edward Wilson and he still kind of has that, that laconic, sad, not very excited edge in his voice. Yeah. Yeah, even though this is, this is clearly,
0: like, he's clearly passionate about it, like, he yeah. did this for a reason. Uh, but later on in the video, it, you're following Edward O. Wilson, like, recent Edward O. Wilson, old Edward O. Wilson, mm-hmm. wandering around in the Florida wilderness, coming up to, uh, uh, a, a, a fire ant colony. Mm-hmm. He reaches down with his bare hand, stirs them up, like scrapes the nest, and they all begin to swarm. And then he sticks his hand in the nest <laughs> and lets them crawl in his hand and lets them begin to uh, uh, to to attack his hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he brushes them off. But it 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 really demonstrates his oh, man his devotion to connecting with the natural world and his fascination with uh, with these insects.
1: Well, it, it, it's almost deranged because yeah. he's, he's like, smiling gleefully mm-hmm. as they're all stinging and attacking the back of his hand. He's got these hundreds of ants on his skin. Yeah. And he's like, each one of these bites is like a hot needle. <laughs> but it, it just shows you how, you know, how fascinated he is with them. Like, that
0: he would have this really kind of a holy moment. Like, I kept thinking of uh, St. Francis with the animals, only instead of touching a, you know, petting a, 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 a lamb, right. he's petting fire ants.
1: If lambs could sting. Yes. <laughs> so um,
0: Edward O. Wilson, uh, so he moved uh, on to Harvard in 1955 and he joined the faculty there and again he retired in 1996 uh, but, but he remains uh, on as a, an honorary uh, curator in entomology and he's re- during the course of his career, again, he's written numerous books. He's received more awards than we can list in this podcast, including the Pulitzer Prize, which he, I believe, received at least twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's received the TED Prize and the U.S. National Medal of Science, again, just to name a few.
1: Now, a lot of Wilson's efforts outside of his scientific research over the years have been focused on the idea of conservation and yes. preservation of nature. Yes, that we have this rich biodiversity.
0: Everything's connected, and we have to preserve it because if you start, you start pulling things out. You start allowing things to go dark in this epic grid of of biodiverse um, uh, life. Mm -hmm. Then uh, you're going to have cascading collapses, and uh, you're going to uh, you're going to 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 risk. uh,
1: tremendous damage to our ecosystem. He sort of reminds me of the influence of somebody who I, I enjoyed talking about last year in our summer reading episode, which is the uh, uh, early ecologist Alexander von Humboldt, sort of mm-hmm. responsible for the idea of ecology, both focusing on the interconnections between things in nature, how an organism doesn't... No organism is an island. It doesn't stand on its own, and they all have connected interdependencies, and it, we... we we threaten natural life forms at our own peril. And I think he frames this in two ways. He says, you know, destroying natural habitats and destroying organisms that may in fact be some kind of keystone species in a natural ecology... That threatens us materially, like these can have negative effects on our health. It can lead to the spread of new diseases. It can make resources harder to get. It can cause all kinds of problems for us materially. But he also emphasizes a lot just, just the feeling of pleasure we get from nature yeah. and how important it is to our sense of well-being and happiness to have intact natural ecologies around us. And this is sort of how he gets to uh, the, the biophilia hypothesis. All
0: right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will dive into the biophilia hypothesis and uh, discuss uh, what it's saying, uh, and also some, eventually we'll also get to some criticism about it. All right, we're back. So, Wilson proposed this term, biophilia, meaning the love of life, in uh, the short publication back in 1984, Biophilia, the Human Bond with Other Species. And he defined uh, this as humanity's uh, innate tendency to focus on living things as opposed to the inanimate. And in effect, he argued for an innate love of nature.
1: Now, there you already see some tension in the definitions, right? Because in one statement there, it's talking about focusing on other life forms mm-hmm. and lifelike processes and in the other statement it's saying that we naturally love nature now focusing on things and loving them are different and this is going to be one of the problems people have raised with the biophilia hypothesis is um, that it, it may not be exactly pinned down on exactly what the hypothesis is saying but for now we we should just try to explain the way it's usually expressed by people who are in favor of the biophilia hypothesis and they, they tend to, to go with the focus idea, right? Right. That it's that we focus on other living things and lifelike processes. We're for some reason we're way more interested in trees than we are in rocks. Right. Now, I should also add that the term
0: biophilia itself was used earlier in the 1960s by the German social psychologist, Erich Fromm, uh, to denote uh, a psychological orientation toward nature, Uh, but uh, it was really uh, Wilson who then took it and tweaked the meaning and and really led to its primary usage today.
1: Well, maybe we should read a passage from Wilson to see what, what he has to say about the concept. He
0: says, The object of my reflection can be summarized by a single word, biophilia, which I will be so bold as to define as the innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes. From infancy, we concentrate happily on ourselves and other organisms. We learn to distinguish life from the inanimate and move toward it like moths to a porch light. Novelty and diversity are particularly esteemed. The mere mention of the word extraterrestrial evokes reveries about still unexplored life, displacing the old and once potent exotic that drew earlier generations to remote islands and jungled interiors. That much is immediately clear, but a great deal more needs to be added. I will make the case that to explore and affiliate with life is a deep and complicated process in mental development. To an extent still undervalued in philosophy and religion, our ex- our existence depends on this propensity. Our spirit is woven from it. Hope rises on its currents.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like that. And so I like that he's... He's situating biophilia as a sort, as a hypothesis to explain mm-hmm. something about our nature, but it also I think for him takes on a, a sort of propulsive meaning about like how we should act. That yes. If we act in accordance with, uh, with these natural urges to affiliate with nature, we can sort of shed this man conquers nature mentality that was present in a lot of human history and you might wonder like, okay, so if Throughout a lot of human history, we've had this mentality of, you know, we've got to tame the beast of nature. Right. We've got to make it bend to our will.
0: And defeat our predatory adversaries in the wild.
1: Is that that tendency throughout human history a challenge to the biophilia hypothesis? I don't know. What do you think, Robert?
0: Well, we'll discuss this a little bit more as as we go. But I I do find it interesting that even in environmental circles, even in – in environmental movements, you see them, you see individuals evoke this idea of mastery over nature. You mm-hmm. know, it becomes this idea of saving the planet, positioning man as this, as, as, you know, not completely, um, you know, dishonestly, uh, but positioning us as, as individuals with power over nature, and mm-hmm. therefore we should use our power over nature to rein things in and and gain control over the situation.
1: I I like the way you put it there about the idea of saving the planet. Like, Mm -hmm. why do, what does it mean when you talk about saving the whales versus not hurting the whales? Right. I mean, essentially you're, you're saying the same thing, but they're starting with different assumptions. Yes. Uh, when, if you were to say save the whales, it almost says like, you know, we have two fates on a scale that we control and we can press one side down or press the other side down. Save them or kill them. Mm-hmm. But really the idea is that on their own they'd be fine. We are doing things to them to kill them. You know, yeah. it's not like they were naturally going extinct when we found them.
0: Yeah, so you could have, you can have one person that's saying, save the whales, and the other person could say, let's live in harmony with the whales. Ultimately, they may be arguing for the same thing, mm-hmm. but the, but each argument, you know, cast uh, humanity and its role with nature in a slightly different light.
1: Yeah, and so I think the, uh, the stop harming the environment as opposed to save the environment might be better because it, better emphasizes the fact that we we live alongside all the other organisms in the environment and we need them mm-hmm. they're not like pets that we're deciding what to do with
0: yeah of course then again messaging is aimed at at the listener yeah and there are going to be certain uh groups certain individuals that are going to react more strongly to some, to different arguments and mm-hmm. say hey you have the power to save some whales don't you want to save some whales yeah that made me feel really good <laughs> but if you say hey man stop killing the whales, stop hurting the whales, stop wrecking our environment, you know, that puts sometimes a negative spin on it that is not going to be as embraced by an individual or group.
1: Yeah, I guess it's the superhero mentality. You yeah. want to be the superhero and save the bus full of children. It's not all that exciting to say that you wouldn't harm a bus full of children. Yeah, uh, I have
0: one more quote from uh, Wilson I want to read before we move forward. He Just because this is just another example of his his beautiful ability to, to sum up uh, so many of these environmental ideas. He says, The living environment is what really sustains us. The living environment creates the soil, creates most of the atmosphere. It is not just something out there. The biosphere is a membrane, a very thin membrane of living organism.
1: Now, it's important to point out that as a scientific hypothesis, if biophilia has anything to say, it should have something to say, meaning that it shouldn't just be, you know, people love nature, right? Because we, that's sort of obvious. People do generally tend to love nature in one way or another, even if you're not really an outdoors person, you probably have some kind of preference for natural shapes, for plant environments, mm-hmm. for things like that over dead, dry, uninhabited landscapes. I mean, think about picture the surface of the moon or Mars or something like that. Does that look like a place you want to live?
0: No. <laughs> but at the same time, it is it is an environment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we were just talking about Arabia Mountain yesterday, which is a local uh, hiking area mm-hmm. in the Atlanta area. And we were saying, oh, it's great. It's like walking on another planet. It's like being on the moon.
1: Yeah. It's cool for a couple hours. Yeah. It's, it's not a place that I would want to live, I think, because, well, even though there are some plants on it, the mm-hmm. thing about Arabia Mountain is it's a place near Atlanta where it's this, this outcropping of mostly bald stone mm-hmm. that has no soil. It has no plants. There are a few little groves on it that have trees and bushes growing up out of them, but mostly it's just bare rock. And while I'm there, it's cool, but it's cool for exactly the reason that it's not a place I'd want to stay. Does yeah. that make sense? But how do you feel about the desert? I like the desert, but the desert's full of life. Yeah. I don't know how I'd feel about Well, the desert I've been to, I mean, like I've been to the Chihuahua Desert, mm-hmm. and it's full of life. It's fascinating. And the the life in the desert, when you come to like a place where there's a river flowing through a desert and there's green radiating out away from it, the life you see becomes all the more precious because of how scarce the greenery and things are, uh, in, in other places around now, a place that's just pure sand dunes with no life forms at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's cool to look out for a few minutes, but I don't know if I'd want to stay there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess it's going to vary from, from person to person, but, uh, I, I would love to hear from anyone out there is listening. who's like, yes, uh, build me a cabin in a sand, out on the sand dunes and I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, you might have, might be able to put a, a, you know, make a stronger argument for it. Now, to your point about this being a hypothesis too and about it being scientific, uh, scientifically grounded is that on one hand, yes, uh, biophilia in, involves a, a, an ethos and uh, and a lot of just commentary on what it is to be human and the human experience. But then there is also the, the idea that there's at least in part a genetic link involved, that this is something that is going to go deeper than just... Uh, uh, you know, how we're nurtured, but it's going to get down to our core biological nature.
1: Yeah, this would make it biologically testable. Say yes. It's uh, that our uh, tendency to affiliate with nature or tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes is somehow determined by our genes, or at least it's primed by our genes. Yes. You know, uh, gene primed learning is a thing that they often emphasize. So that should, in theory, be testable in some way, mm-hmm. if if you're clear enough about what it is you're looking for. So maybe we should talk about some of the commonly cited evidence by biophilia theorists. What, what do they say are good reasons to think that we have this innate, in uh, inherited tendency to affiliate with other life forms? All right. Well, here's some of the uh, so here's some of the anecdotal evidence. All right.
0: Um, so first of all, universal appreciation for nature across human cultures. Mm-hmm. Now we've already touched on this a little bit, but uh, it's just the idea that no matter where you go, there's going to be Nature and natural elements wrapped up in that culture. And uh, one example that I really like is people in very different cultures all over the world tend to like a particular kind of landscape, a landscape that just uh, happens to be similar to the uh, Pleistocene savannas uh, that we evolved uh, to thrive in, the ideal savanna.
1: Yeah, and this is related to a concept known in evolutionary psychology as the Environment of Evolutionary Adaptedness, or the EEA, which is basically the idea that animals tend to be adapted not to live anywhere on Earth but for a particular landscape or type of environment that shaped their genes – and if that's the case, you've sort of like put your chips down on being the kind of organism that thrives in this kind of place. And as such, you should have some kind of mechanisms in your brain that tell you seek out that kind of place where you play best.
0: Yes. Now, this I love this, uh, this, this theory uh, and this idea about art, though, because if you spend any time in museums, you run across landscapes. And sometimes I'm not I'm not too much of a landscape guy. I tend to to walk by a lot of them unless there's something really cool going on, such as uh, we were just in the last episode talking about, or one of our previous episodes talking about uh, landscape with the fall of Icarus. Oh yeah, uh, by uh, uh, was it Bosch or Bruegel? I can't remember. Bruegel, yeah, Bruegel, and uh, yeah. So you have one detail of a falling mythological figure, uh, but then also just a, a, a natural landscape with human activity and, and mm-hmm. nature going on. So. When you do, when you look at a a lot of the, these, these works of uh, landscape art, you find Open spaces of low grasses interspersed with uh, copses of trees. Okay. The trees tend to fork near the ground, which is to say, uh, if they're trees, they're trees you could scramble up into if you needed to get away from something. Okay. Uh, there's water close by or in the distance, so you don't feel like you're going to uh, necessarily uh, dry up or uh, you know or, or you'd be able to take a swim if you got overheated. Or there's there are indications of animal life, maybe birds in the distance, as well as diverse greenery. And finally. Ah, uh, get this a path or a road, perhaps a riverbank or a shoreline that extends into the distance, almost inviting you to follow it. Hmm. And this type of landscape is generally regarded as beautiful, even by people in countries that that don't have it. you know, like your your culture might not have a lot of landscape art, but you're gonna there's a very good chance you're going to encounter another culture's landscape art and you're gonna get it, you know, you can be complete. you could have never seen uh, any, you know, say, you know, Chinese or Japanese landscape art, and then you would view it and you'd be like, yeah, I totally get it. I, and you're, you're just drawn into it. You, you want to crawl into the painting and run
1: around with the trees. Okay, so this is commonly cited anecdotal evidence about the kinds of, uh, art and imagery people prefer. Now, I would say as a counterexample, as long as we're sticking with anecdotal for uh-huh. now and, and we're not, uh, <laughs> claiming to have some kind of strong empirical case. I'd say just personally, when I think about landscape images, I like the most. I like mountain images
0: yeah well, you know one of these things is that to, w- what is often going on in a mountain in image i mean you 're going to have some somebody or something standing at a peak, looking out, mm-hmm. just having a, you know mastery over the landscape, being able to survey everything around you,
1: yeah, and that, see predators approaching you from a distance. You could very much argue that that 's an evolutionary adaptation mm-hmm. as well, yeah, because exactly having having the the higher ground gives you the ability to see what 's coming in in multiple directions. But, of course, that isn't exactly biophilia because that, that's talking about landscapes, but it's not really talking about organisms mm-hmm. or lifelike processes. Though, the one thing I will point out is that in some of the biophilia literature, there does seem to be sometimes a kind of blurriness or fuzziness about whether we're talking still just about natural organisms or whether this is turning into a preference for natural types of landscapes as opposed to, I don't know what, cities or something like that.
0: Yeah. Now another example that comes up is uh, the fact that some of the the earliest human artworks uh, are the I mean the, the various cave paintings that show uh, you know realistic animals, mm-hmm. uh, realistic uh, uh, human beings, and uh, and uh, and also just decorative motifs that are clearly inspired by natural world organisms.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, you see these these ancient reverent images, and they tend to be what they tend to be. Animals, yeah, especially uh, prey animals mm-hmm. that you might be hunting.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know, these date back thirty-two thousand years. Uh, in the case of some of the uh, the French cave paintings that we've seen, and if you uh, if you consider uh, shell necklaces and whatnot, which might be stretching the argument a little bit, but that can take you back a good hundred thousand years. Hmm. Now, beyond that, there are other anecdotal examples. Like landscape architecture is full of uh, of, of examples of this. I ran across some. Uh, some uh, material by Bill Brown and Keith uh, Bowers and Carol Franklin, all of them uh, landscape architects, and uh, and they point out that you're just frequently going to encounter uh, actual nature inside of uh, of a building. You're going to encounter fish tanks and plants. You're going to encounter uh, you know ornaments and patterns that read like nature. So it might be you, you say you're in Florida and then you go into a beach resort. But is there going to be some sort of pineapple design uh, you know, on the, uh, the pillars or on the wallpaper? Uh, you have to take that into account. And, uh, and, oh, and then that open savanna that we crave? Well, you could argue that we also create it uh, to some extent in our golf courses. You're right. Mm-hmm. Golf courses. Yeah. In a way, it's, it's a weird combination, like the ultimate <laughs> mastery over nature. You, en- you enslave nature and just turn it into your own yard game. The, and bend it to your will, but still you're, tr- you're evoking certain natural motifs, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I'm so impressed by that. You know, I feel like you've – golf courses, you just blew my Savannah hypothesis <laughs> skepticism out of the water.
0: And, uh, it, I mean, it does go to show that the idea of biophilia, you, there's like overt biophilia and mm-hmm. then biophilia in ways that you didn't even realize you were you were – you know, employing it. I uh, like another example of that is the symbolic use of uh, nature in
1: human language. Oh yeah, all our metaphors are nature metaphors. Yeah, you know, a lot of a, a
0: lot of them are very overt. You know, blind as a bat, wise as an owl, pretty as a peacock, uh, crazy as a rat, as an outhouse rat. Um, whoa, 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 what? Oh yeah, <laughs> is lo- that a real
1: expression? Yeah, Did you cra- just make that there's up. As
0: crazy as an outhouse rat, and then there's crazy as a rat in a coffee can. I love a good crazy rat. Um, uh, analogy there,
1: but um, how, how about a bull in a china shop? A bull in a china shop is good too. Of course, china shops are not very, uh, very much part of our evolutionary adapted landscape. But no,
0: but but, but but the bull is the bull, the bull, and various other animals as a way to evoke uh, personality. You know? Yeah. And the thing is, these are these are just the, some of the obvious ones, but it gets a lot more elegant to the point that you're not always aware that you're invoking animal imagery in your language, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Oh and then I mean we could go on for forever here about uh, about spiritual reverence for nature across cultures. Totally. Yeah, think of all the sacred places in global myth from Edenic gardens to sacred mountains to primordial oceans uh, like we discussed in our uh, recent episode about creating a universe.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, though yet again there we're somewhat blurring the original definition if the hypothesis is supposed to be about organisms Wait a minute, are we talking about landscapes or just organisms? Well, let's
0: talk about organisms. Let's look at all those gods and demigods that we have uh, rolling about. Uh, how much, I mean, certainly there are examples of very uh, anthropomorphic deities that are right. just pretty much just tall, bearded people. Mm-hmm. But yet even in, even say, uh, Abrahamic tradition, you have what? You have winged angels that's invoking, uh, like, uh, you know, Hybrid or, or um, chimerical imagery, uh, mm-hmm. and then you have just straight up. Animal. serpent. Yeah, you have the world serpents, you have uh, celestial dragons in uh, Chinese mythology that are themselves composites of all, va- all these various uh, uh, animal motifs. And of course, you look at uh, the, the the pantheon of the uh, Hindu deities, and you mm-hmm. see all of these wonderful animal forms.
1: Now, Wilson himself is very much into the idea of serpent imagery throughout human culture mm-hmm. as one example of the, that he cites of biophilia. But this goes into Wilson's broader definition of biophilia because as some people employ the term they think that it just means like love of other organisms or love of nature Wilson goes with that focus on that our attention is naturally drawn to and stuck on other organisms especially organisms that have some kind of evolutionary relevance for us and one of the examples is the widespread biophobia of snakes so for Mm -hmm. Wilson biophobia is actually a subset of biophilia we've got this relationship with other organisms. And so the, the serpent, uh, human mind relationship is something that, that he really focuses on. He talks about how common snake dreams are across human cultures, Mm -hmm. how common snake imagery is in religions on all, all parts of the planet, how common snake imagery is in art, uh, that there are just snakes everywhere. We apparently can't get them off the brain. And then he also compares this to the way that other primates seem to react to, to snakes with with greater alarm and, and magnitude of activity than they would to many other types of animals of comparable size.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and it goes beyond uh, beyond that into our various pet animals. If anyone's ever mm-hmm. conducted the the cucumber test with a cat, we place the cucumber on the the, uh, the floor behind them when they're not looking. No, and they'll turn around and if they they, they glimpse the cucumber, they'll jump. Whoa! Um, I've had I have not had a lot of luck with this experiment with my own cat. <laughs> Granted, <laughs> how you know, many
1: times you tried?
0: Only when I'm holding a cucumber in the kitchen <laughs> and I look down and see the cat facing the other way. So you maybe know,
1: you need longer cucumbers.
0: Yeah, or just
1: more. You know,
0: I, I should I should plan more in my uh, cat experiments. Uh-huh. But then, of course, anyone who's in who's ever in, involved uh, themselves with horses knows you know how a horse can behave if it sees a snake. I mean. And, and, I, and I'm not even sure about dogs. I assume dogs have strong reactions to serpents as well.
1: Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah. Just the other day, my dog Charlie tried to eat a dead one. Oh, well. We're, we're out walking. It's there on the sidewalk, belly up, rotting a little bit, and he he saw a snack. <laughs> I had to yank him away. You have to get in there.
0: Now, back to the idea of, of religion and, uh, and biophilia. Um uh, uh, you know, I I also think that that heavily nature aligned faiths illustrate this as well. Such as like Shinto comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the Japanese uh, uh, mentality that there is uh, you know there's a there's a spiritual energy in all things. And mm-hmm. granted, some of that includes rocks, but it statues, but it can you know certainly includes uh, you know, natural uh, forms as well and mm-hmm. organisms. Uh, and there's actually an excellent article in the New York Times from this week. Uh, by the time you hear it, it will be like a couple of weeks old, I guess. But it's about resurgent religious faith in China and the environmental activism that is coming with it. Uh, and it's hardly an underground thing. President Xi Jinping has uh, championed a return to interest in Chinese culture and particularly Taoism uh, and Confucianism. Hmm. So, and part of this is countering Western influences. Uh, but he's called for China to return to its roots as a, quote, uh, ecological civilization. Now, the article also points out that the movement is vo- motivating Chinese Buddhists, Christians and Muslims as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always, I think, worth reminding everyone that, that China is is home to 55 distinct uh, ethnic groups, even if uh, Han is the majority there. Uh, and there are also numerous uh, religious faiths.
1: Now, I wonder how this initiative plays into the Chinese government's enabling of heavy polluting industry. I mean, of course, they're not unique in governments to enable that, but
0: no, no, that's a that's a, a fair, a fair criticism. And I think that's certainly a conflict in uh, in China uh, uh, presently. Um, and, you know, there are other motivations as well, such as with, uh, you know, the U.S. sort of taking a uh, a lesser role in the uh, environmental leadership, that there is a place right. for uh, someone like China to step up and assume yeah. power. So there's power here as well. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's at stake. But as this article by uh, Javier uh, C. Hernandez points out, there's there's more of an emphasis in these resulting environmental movements on living in harmony with nature rather than what is perceived as a Western take on saving the Earth, to come back to the distinction we were talking about earlier.
1: So it's don't kill the whales, not save the whales.
0: Right, yeah. And I think this is interesting in light of biophilia because – I, th- I think it's very in keeping with the message of, of stewardship, understanding, biodiversity. But at the same time, we see that that very savior message, uh, you know, invoked in materials promoting Edward Wilson and biophilia. That, like, that Harrison Ford video we were talking about, he describes that, uh, quote, as an epic battle to save our
1: planet. <laughs> <laughs> and it will involve swords and magic staves. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, you know, there are, some people will actually bring uh, technology into
0: this argument as well. Wilson himself said that the more we understand organisms through science, the closer we become to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while technology can arguably distance ourselves from nature as well, it can bring us closer. Uh, molecular biology and genetic engineering, for example, bring us closer to nature. gives us a greater understanding. And you can even argue that the search for extraterrestrial life, too, is a biophilic endeavor.
1: Oh, I mean, the SETI is almost a perfect... Example of biophilia, if there is any merit to the idea, because, like, there are millions of planets out there. Mm That we could be interested in and what are we interested in? We're interested in the ones that have life on them. Right. Now that could, you could say that there, there's just sort of like a cognitively recognized self-preservation instinct, right? Mm-hmm. That we, we say, okay, if there's another planet with life on it out there, it could be a threat to us, could help us so that we have motivations based in our cognitive capacities to understand that life has this, this value out there. But that's not the only kind of life we're interested in. People have been looking for micro in the soil of Mars for decades now. Yeah. And we scoop up the soil of Mars and we want to see things alive in it. Why do we care so much about that? I mean, and that's not just scientists who care. I understand why scientists care because it's part of their life's work. But but the average person really does care usually whether there's life on Mars. That's an interesting question to them. Why?
0: Well, because the answer ends up saying, I mean,
1: it ends up saying something about ourselves and about life itself, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh but but also I think just because life is interesting. Yeah. The the presence of life somewhere makes that place so much more fascinating than an otherwise dead rock covered in loose soil and and stones.
0: This makes me want to see more uh sort of darkly uh Edward uh, Wilson type characters in some of our <laughs> sci-fi horror. You know, someone who's going to really just reach out and touch the xenomorphs. And love them. I guess we do see characters like that in the various alien films. Uh, mm. Brad Dorff comes to mind in the uh, Alien
1: Resurrection. I can't <laughs> speak any anything positive about Alien <laughs> Resurrection. Let's move on.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on, Andy. Let's take uh, one more quick break. And when we come back, we'll get into measurable bio- biological evidence for biophilia as well as some evidence against it.
1: All right, we're back. So so far we've been talking uh, w- not super rigorously about right. science. We've been talking about co- general anecdotal observations about people's behavior, about culture, about our own feelings, mm-hmm. a- and that's fine, but that's not going to prove a scientific hypothesis and make it a workable theory. Right. And and Edward O, o. Wilson has
0: has been pretty clear throughout his career with this that like the, there 's not strong evidence for it that there, the, I think he more recently said yeah there 's stronger evidence for it, but he 's not he realizes that the the evidence is not there yet yeah. a lot of more research is required. But uh, some of the uh, the measurable uh, evidence that's out there, uh, we've already touched on this a little bit, but measurable uh, physiological responses in humans that are exposed to sometimes just images of snakes or spiders. Right.
1: There has been actual empirical research on this, and, mm-hmm. and it's comparing our responses as humans to the responses especially of other primates to say, like, is there some inherited uh, genetic component to our reactions to these animals that's not just culturally learned? Yes. That in a way, there's just – like there's there's awareness. There's an important like subcognitive awareness, you know? And to go back to the, the idea of biophobia, this would be a biophobia that Wilson would include underneath his definition of biophilia. It would be a natural focus or attention that we give to certain types of organisms. Right.
0: Now another big area and this is this is certainly an area where there have been a number of uh, of studies over the years, and we could easily do a whole episode on it, but the
1: importance of sunlight on mood and productivity hmm now how would that uh, because obviously the sunlight is not like an organism so right but it's it's I, I, I believe the argument is that you're
0: getting into the idea that like being being outdoors, being in nature. Mm. There are there are aspects of nature that yes aren't directly aligned with organisms, uh, but are but is responsible for organisms that we're going to have this innate connection with.
1: So this is expanding the definition, and I have seen this done in mm-hmm. some people who talk about the subject expanding the definition to say that it's not just the desire to affiliate with organisms, but with natural environments. Right. Like when people talk about how it's people want to seek out water, you mm-hmm. know, being by the water or yeah. something like that, and that's you know not necessarily being by a pool, but being by a natural river or lake or something like that, Uh, that could be, yeah, I I guess that could be a peripheral or related type of idea.
0: Now, another area of measurable uh, uh, effect here uh, ties in with a 1984 study by uh, Roger Ulrich, which found that patients recovering from surgery uh, actually recovered uh, much more effectively uh, if they were viewing trees and shrubs, uh, as opposed to those that would just had a view out their window of a brick wall. They also ended up taking half the painkillers and made half the nursing calls.
1: So there was like a change in their behavior, not just in their reported affect, but in, in what they actually did if they could see some vegetation.
0: Yeah, if they just, if they could just see some trees and, you know,
1: and uh, you know, presumably it may be some squirrels and birds in there as well. Mm-hmm. So this is part of a broader body of literature on the benefits of vegetative environments. There's been a lot of research like this. Some of it also associated with this same guy, uh, uh, Roger Ulrich. And across different studies, people have this positive aesthetic reaction to plant-filled environments. And these environments are usually found to have some kind of stress-reducing effect Mm -hmm. or somehow this otherwise restorative effect on mood and on behavior. And this goes beyond uh, vegetation as well. For example, people tend to report reductions in stress or show fewer stress behaviors in the presence of an aquarium that has live fish in it. Or how about the often reported? I mean, we don't need to tell you about all of the tons of studies that report the health benefits and mood benefits of exposure to pets, yes, companion animals. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, lowering your blood pressure and all you know all the stuff like that over the years. Oh yeah, I
0: mean, it's one of the reasons that you you, you have these like, hospital animals that make the rounds and just meet and greet people. Uh, just the, the idea being that this will this will improve their their condition at least in a you know a, a small sense, but a measurable sense.
1: One other thing I've read about that's interesting is the idea of humans preference for certain geometric patterns. Oh, for yeah. example, uh, so geometric patterns can be expressed in terms of what are called fractal patterns that mm-hmm. are uh, repeating patterns that are often said to resemble designs found in biological organisms and in nature. So if you look down at Surfaces of the Earth from above, say winding rivers through a plain, Mm -hmm. or how mountain, uh, how uh, you know the the drainage areas in mountains form these these spiky patterns looking down from above, or if you look at the branches of trees or of ferns or of the spirals and uh, flowering plants. Oh, I mean, this
0: gets into the golden ratio, right? I mean, the idea that if you if you do any image editing out there, you, you you know you often bring in one of these overlays even sometimes like i use the rule of thirds one a lot uh, which is a, a very inorganic way of of breaking up your photo but you can also bring in essentially a snail shell mm-hmm. so you can yes. see this curve so you end up with situations where people are like they may not be actually thinking this but essentially they're looking at an image and saying oh this this photograph of race cars is great but i'd love it a little bit more if it evoked an image of a snail shell.
1: (laughs) No? No, yeah, you probably don't think it consciously, but people do in some studies show preferences for fractal patterns, Mm -hmm. geometric fractal patterns at certain levels of, of density branching And these basically are said to correspond to the most common patterns seen in natural organisms. So if you're thinking about branching trees or mangrove roots or things Mm -hmm. like that, these are geometric patterns that our brains seem to prefer looking at. Now, of course, one question about that is if we're responding to geometric patterns through some uh Innate preference in our brain that's not just culturally learned, but we, we've got these inherited genetic preferences for things that spike at this angle this many times. One wonders if that means you could trick your brain into satisfying any kind of biophilic impulse to whatever extent that is real just by looking at dead geometric patterns or things like that that simulate whatever mm. it is we notice in nature that we like.
0: Yeah, and I think here we get, we get down to this uh, situation where biophilia, it's kind of like the echoes of biophilia throughout our, our life and our culture and our creations. Even things that don't, you know, aren't overtly a statue of an animal or the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the evocation of, a, of an animal's form, mm-hmm. uh, there are still aspects of it there that are resonating through most of what we do.
1: Now, I think it's time to talk about some criticisms of the idea because if you you can't tell, I've got some reservations about Mm -hmm. biophilia. At the same time that I find it strongly intuitively persuasive, I also recognize that the idea – it's got some problems. Okay. So I wanted to talk about one study I read that was published in 2011 in the journal Environmental Values, which is a peer-reviewed environmental ethics journal by the authors Joy and DeBlock called Nature and I Are Two, a critical examination of the biophilia hypothesis. And like I said, while I, I intuitively respond to a lot of what Wilson and, and people like him have said, I think this article makes some good points. So they're arguing against the biophilia hypothesis and they don't argue that we don't have natural inherited tendencies to focus on living things. But they're more talking about whether biophilia as a commonly understood uh, idea is a coherent scientific construct. So this is the author's take. Biophilia is presented as a hypothesis, and they say, "Okay, that's fine, because when you're at the hypothesis stage in science, you're not saying this is a proven theory or something like that. You're just saying we're speculating about something that appears to be the case. Let's do some experiments and find out if it's true. That would be fine, but there's one key criterion for a hypothesis, and that's that it needs to be falsifiable, Now, this is buying into one particular theory about the demarcation problem separating science from pseudoscience. We've talked about that before. Uh, But this is a very commonly accepted solution of the demarcation problem. A hypothesis should be a statement that you can come up with some kind of way of showing whether it's true or false, that you could prove it false. Now, they turn to the biophilia definition that's often offered by E.O. Wilson, which is, quote, the innate tendency to focus on life and life-like processes. And they break that into three key parts, which is A, the innate tendency, B, to focus, and C, on life or lifelike processes. So they start by talking about life or lifelike processes. And this is a good point. They say, okay, so how is lifelike defined? The hypothesis is often expanded to include things like we've been talking about natural landscapes, Mm -hmm. water features, as the object of biophilia. So is a waterfall an object of biophilia? Obviously, a waterfall is not alive, but biophilia theorists sometimes assert that moving water features and other things are lifelike enough that they can be grouped under the biophilia rubric. And on what basis do we conclude that? Like, what gets ruled in? And do people looking at a waterfall really start thinking of it in the same way they would think of an organism? I'm not sure that there's strong evidence for that.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, if you take the waterfall out and you just think about flowing water, I mean, flowing mm-hmm. water is a habitat for organisms. Right. Uh, and then, you know, in any place where there's some sort of a dynamic with flowing water, there's a potential for the uh, – the, the the capture and consumption of said organisms. Yeah,
1: I, I see that, but it, that that almost begs a greater expansion of the statement of the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Right? It seems like uh, that would make it an innate tendency to focus on life or life like processes or environments that could sustain life or life like processes. Okay,
0: but then you can also come back and say, what is a what is a branching. Uh, uh, waterway, but a but a branching vein through a body. Like, does the the form of the the flowing water uh, evoke the flow of blood through an organism, or the um, you know the chambers inside a, a plant?
1: I mean, I, that's a good point. But I guess I guess the question would be: Are people really seeing it that way? Mm-hmm. Like, is that is that entering their minds, or are they just responding to water because sometimes you get thirsty?
0: Yeah. Or it's just really loud. And pretty or much like or they know. just
1: like these moving features or there's some other thing about it that's mm-hmm. – uh, yeah. So uh, th- th- I think that's a decent point to raise. The next thing they focus on is the idea of focusing. So in that definition, there's some wishy-washiness about uh, what the human who experiences biophilia does. Like sometimes biophilia is treated as the desire to, quote, affiliate with other organisms. And to me, that means – we would assume it to mean that you want to be near them, mm-hmm. you want to look at them, you want to touch them, you want to interact with them. Uh, but other times there's this more neutral word focus used. And and because of our biophilia, the idea is we focus on living organisms. They sort of command our attention, living yeah. organisms or lifelike processes. But they point out that there's there's not necessarily consistency here. Ulrich seems to define biophilia as a positive affiliation with life forms. Wilson himself uh, includes biophobia within the definition of biophilia. And one of his primary examples, as we talked about, is this nearly universal mental obsession with snakes and frightening snake imagery. Um, so th- they say that, you know, this part of the definition really does need to be more specific. We need to figure out what we're talking about here. Is it just what we like or... Or is it what gets our attention or w- what is going on?
0: Well, and this raises questions, too. I mean, it makes me think about uh, about deer hunters, you know, which yeah. imagine you can relate to having grown up uh, uh, in the south and in, in Tennessee. Yeah. You I said, was look, not
1: a deer hunter myself, but no, nor ma- I. I have known many.
0: Yeah. And there's a it's sometimes tricky, I think, for for people who aren't affiliated with that culture or haven't really given it much thought to, to understand. But there is a love for nature and even a love for deer, I think, with with a lot, maybe even most maybe all deer hunters, you know mm-hmm. there's a and there's this at times kind of difficult to understand reverence for the deer you know you see like deer stickers on people's car and the the the, the trophies of, of their heads um, you know hung in their homes almost with a like a religious zeal, almost like it's some some ancient uh, you know antlered god.
1: Well, I mean, it mimics the behavior of our ancient ancestors Certainly. who would – who might in some kind of religious way take pieces of an animal that they had killed mm-hmm. primarily for material resources. You know, you'd want its meat. You'd want its hide for clothing or something like that. But what do you do with the antlers? They become some kind of religious artifact. Yeah, or tools. Yeah. But, yeah.
0: All right. Well, what about uh... – Part A, that innate part.
1: Right, and this is another important part. So this means that biophilic tendencies are, are not learned through culture, but they're inherited biologically. And this would generally be accepted to mean that they had adaptive value in the past, right? They they served us some purpose, and so we adapted to favor them. And th- there's not always agreement on what form these adaptive mechanisms take, mm-hmm. uh, wh- whether they stem from the same general mechanism or what their relative importance is. So the Authors reformulate the hypothesis to fit all the nuances they've just brought in. And it becomes there is a set of genetic predispositions of different strength involving different sorts of affective states toward different kinds of lifelike things. You can see the problem here, right? Yeah. This, this is becoming so broad as to accommodate almost anything and it becomes really hard to falsify since there's just so much wiggle room in that in that definition of the proposition.
0: And it creeps more towards just a pure ethos or you know, philosophy as opposed to something you can scientifically test for.
1: Right. Uh, now, to be fair to the biophilia theorists, the authors point out that this could be a sort of unreasonably broad definition – uh, that's an artifact of the fact that they're trying to synthesize the work of different researchers working within the biophilia framework and that it's possible for one individual scientist maybe to have a tighter, sturdier, more testable version of the hypothesis, though the authors don't really seem to favor any of the particular ones they've come across. But if so, I think what they're thinking needs to happen is that biophilia theorists should identify the leaner, more specific hypothesis and unify their experiments underneath it. Uh, They also – they attack some of the specific evidence given for the common legs of the biophilia hypothesis. For example, the savanna preference Mm -hmm. hypothesis, the idea of us uh, loving companion animals and our, quote, vegetated settings. You know, that we surround ourselves with potted plants and things like that even Mm -hmm. though there's no apparent material reason or benefit for doing so. And whether or not these criticisms of the lines of supporting evidence are correct, I'm somewhat persuaded by their criticism of the biophilia framework definition. Uh, And at the same time, I still feel persuaded by something about the general idea. Um, Like I I do feel this urge to connect with nature in some sense. And in the same way I was talking about Mars, obviously I think life commands our attention in a way that non-living matter really does not seem to. Uh, even if it's not of immediate relevance to our survival or something like that. But, I don't know, maybe this could be culturally learned. I'm open to that possibility. So I, I'm somewhere in the middle on biophilia. I find it intuitively persuasive, but I also recognize that there could be a lot of problems with how it's framed as a scientific proposition, and maybe it needs to be narrowed down and made more specific and more falsifiable.
0: Yeah, on uh, a rational um level i'm 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 I think I'm right there with you but then if i if I look at it more emotionally mm-hmm. you know and uh and you know philosophically i guess i I tend to, to side with biophilia mm-hmm. uh, especially since i my my son is so biophilic you know he's just he loves animals so much uh like he's not interested in in cars or trucks or Superheroes, but it's just it's just animals. He wants to draw animals. He wants to his the toys he has are generally animal related. He yeah. wants to see animals, and and I, I do pick that apart. Uh, I, I think, well, how much of this is you know something that we have have nurtured in him? How much of of this is just you know ha- has to do with his you know with, with with nature itself and something out of our hands? Um, yeah, like where does it come from? Is it is it biophilic in just a a mere like learnable sense? Mm -hmm. Or is it something deeper, something that that does have uh, an origin in his genes?
1: So here's the real question. The thing we need to test for is we need to completely remove some human test subjects from all culture (laughs) (laughs) and put them on another planet and never communicate them with them at all, Mm -hmm. except we put some hidden cameras in and we give them the opportunity to either live in a, uh, in a, in a sterile environment that satisfies all their material needs and gives them, uh, food and entertainment and stuff like that, or an environment that's full of house plants and cats and dogs and, uh, and uh, gardens and flowers and access to walks in the woods. Hmm. If they would go for the latter, it does raise the question, why do they want that? Huh. What what is telling them to do that instead of just go to the place that meets all their material needs?
0: Huh. You know, I in, in discussing like sci-fi scenarios here, I can't help but uh, but look back on the the fabulous uh, Bruce Dern movie um, Silent Running.
1: Oh yeah, where he's trying to save the plants.
0: Yeah, and he's yeah. This is, so the the situation in this movie. It's a great movie. See it uh, if you if you haven't. Uh, but Bruce Dern basically plays like the the last biophilic human. In our civilization, like the the forests of Earth are gone and they're only maintained within these giant biospheres aboard uh, a a series of uh, they're not spaceships, space ships, but they're kind of just in orbit. And uh, and then the 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 ruling comes up, the orders come up that they need to jettison and detonate all of the forests. Bruce Dern's character goes rogue and uh, and, you know, takes off towards Saturn. With the the last forests of Earth,
1: it's the adult version of the Lorax.
0: Yes, it is. He speaks for the trees. Yeah, Um, but yeah, in that case, like he is the that's a a vision of a humanity that has lost its biophilia, that has drifted so far from it that they no longer feel any, any attachment, and they no longer recognize the value of the natural world.
1: Concrete, plastic, and steel environments are good enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like cubes of food, as opposed to the stuff that Bruce Stern's character is growing.
1: I mean, that's part of my intuition. I just can't see us ever being cool with that. I, I just yeah. can't. But you know, maybe it's hard to it's hard to do an experiment to really test that. But uh, maybe somebody will come up with a good way. I so my my outlook on biophilia now is I recognize there are problems with the framework but but i think it could be salvaged i think people could come up with a with a leaner more falsifiable version mm-hmm. of the hypothesis and test the dickens out of it
0: all right well there you have it biophilia uh hopefully we provided uh, a nice introduction uh, to this if you weren't familiar with it uh and uh, and and if you were familiar with it we uh we helped remind you about some of the I think some of the important tenets of it, you know, certainly some of the potential problems with it, but also uh, I think the overall positive message of biophilia uh, as a, you know, uh, biodiversity-focused view of... of Humans, uh, humanity's interaction with nature. Now,
1: take your dog out in the woods and get some ticks. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Get out there. All right, hey, if you want to uh, check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, head on over to com. That's the mothership where you will find uh, all of our podcasts attached in uh, wonderful biospheres, uh, and you can uh, you can listen to everything back to the very beginning. You can check out blog post videos, uh, as well as links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter. Twitter, Instagram,
1: Tumblr, and who knows what else. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.